You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. One, two, one, two, well here we are. (laughs) It's ten years old, everybody. Um... Uh, this was uh, this was initially a sound check, but the sound seems fine, so I'll keep going in typically scrambled, thrown together style. Look, I've got one of these. Happy birthday to the Comedians Comedian podcast. <laughs> Jesus, oh that's good. I'll record. I'm now recording the rest of this in uh, gentle smoke. Oh god, that does smell nice. Is that cordite, or have I? That's whenever uh, novels talk about the smell of corvite, which <laughs> cordite, which they don't do very often in my life anymore. But I always associate, I think that's what that smell is, that kind of gunpowdery smell. Brilliant. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to episode 400 of the Comedian's Comedian podcast. Um, I've slipped up already. I've called you everybody. Uh, I normally refer to you as you solo, the listener. Um, but we're going to have to accept that there's more than one of you these days. Um, I think we're somewhere around 20 million downloads, uh, as I joked on stage uh, at Chops Comedy in Bristol only the other week. Uh, that is, of course, across 20 million episodes. Um, but uh, <laughs> and so if you are the listener, thanks for sticking with me the whole time. It's episode 400 and it coincides with 10 years. 10 years was technically, I think, the, the March the 19th was the uh, the actual birthday but um due to an administrative oversight uh this is going out two weeks later than planned but it is still march at time of recording so it counts all right um i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna give you this interview i'll talk to you more in the um in the the middle and the the end bit the post at the post the mid roll and the uh, end roll and the post amble uh, as uh, some of those are technical terms um but first, let's talk to Rob Deering. Rob was my, you know, this is well, this is really rather sweet because I now have some of the, uh, the not confetti. What is it called? The little tissuey, the little curled tissue things that come out of the party popper, um, very attractively dangling on my uh, monitor. So I do feel very party like here, despite the fact that it's just me alone, like always. Um, uh, I will talk to you more about the celebratoriness of this episode shortly. But first, let's get on with the actual episode. I pride myself on getting on with it normally within about three minutes of starting, which is pretty good going by podcasting standards. So let's do that. Uh, Rob Deering was the guest on episode one ten long years ago. Um, some of them felt quite short years. Um, but uh, uh, he's returning now and we're going to talk about... Um, marathons not sprints there's the link right because rob is not only the first guest and a brilliant comic and one of my all-time favorites one of the most re-watchable comedians and i think that is the highest accolade you can really pay someone it's not necessarily you know there are the george carlins out there there are the the mitch hedbergs you know the people are wonderful in different ways um, vastly different ways, but actually rewatchability is huge, a huge part of what makes someone someone's favourite comic. And Rob, I just I can watch him till the cows come home, the black cow and the white cow. That's a deep cut. Um, so uh, I just think he's wonderful. And not only is he a brilliant comic and we will talk about being a comic and we'll talk about being a post comedian as well and what that means. Um, we're also I'm brushing aside some confetti here. Um, 
we're also going to celebrate uh, Rob and Paul Tonkinson, his uh, co-creator and co-host, their fabulous podcast, Running Commentary, because uh, Rob is a runner, a runner proper, and they do this podcast where they run with uh, mics uh, on and headphones and what have you, and they record the podcast as they run. Um, We're going to talk about the associated fandom of that podcast. We're going to talk about whether Rob is secretly serious, uh, walking away from the desire to be liked. That comes up as well. And we're also going to talk about the secret of Roger Rabbit's handcuffs. 25 minutes of extras, including uh, Rob doing so, waxing lyrical. It has to be said, uh, frequently people misuse the phrase waxing lyrical, but wax lyrical he does um, uh, on uh, meritocracy and the strange evolution of comedy from the 70s to now, as well as some pretty informed speculation on its future. So all of that, if you're a member of the Insiders Club, which you can do, uh, you can join by going to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. There we go. Four minutes, 20 not bad going at all. This, in celebration of the 10th birthday, is the welcome return of Rob Deering. Welcome back to the podcast. Back? Back. Happy birthday. Thank you. It's been 10 long years. I listened back to the episode that we recorded. Did you? Did you? What were your thoughts and reflections upon the episode? Uh, It was lovely. It was a very clear memory. It doesn't seem that long ago, but then that is the nature of grown-up life, isn't it? And uh, But the main thing I made was the great mistake of thinking, oh, yeah, there we were right at the beginning. And I realised, yes... It was the beginning of this, and uh, but I'd already been a comedian a long time by then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was the that was the big surprise for me going back. Who are you these days as a comic? Because when we when you were first on the show, one of the reasons I had you on the show was I thought you were, um, and I'm sure I still do think you're someone who is really fluent and articulate and interested in not just doing comedy but kind of the bigger picture of comedy and the world and culture and things like that. You know, you're not just doing a thing and bashing yourself against it in order to make a buck. No, I mean it's very interesting. I think what happened to comedians in lockdown. Um, because some comedians, good comedians who, uh, you know, comedians of a similar pedigree to you or I, people who have been doing comedy for a long time, um, did not know what to do next. Quite reasonably, like people in all kinds of jobs, they just didn't, they're like, well, what am I going to do? If I can't go to a gig yeah. and get paid to do that gig, what the hell you know, and this I won't is just get the like money, a, and more crucially, I won't get the dopamine, and more crucially, I won't get the sense of self. What the hell is the other plan? You know, yeah. and that t- I totally understand that. I know, you know that that I've got obviously our sort of friends online and stuff. You watch them thinking, "Wow, yeah, of course," and that just wasn't my journey at all. I just had to go. Oh, okay. So, well, I suppose now I can. You know, it was I was a real, you know, the whole kind of sourdough cliche thing, you know, of, of sort of trying to improve your life and do something else and have valuable time at home. It was like, great, I'm in. My, the, the, I suppose what that's a sort of lockdown answer, but in terms of what you were saying is to become a comedian in the first place, I had to make a decision to focus. I was trying to do quite a lot of things to to greater or lesser success. And I decided to focus. I actually decided to focus on three things, not one thing. But rather than like five, six, ten things, I thought, well, okay, you've got three things that are kind of day jobs. So see how they pan out. And one was uh, I was uh, on a retainer directing a theatre and education theatre company. I was also writing music for TV and film. Just, you know, a bit. I wasn't, like, making a major living. But I was mm. making I was making money and doing it as a proper job. And I was dabbling in comedy. 
And I thought, commit? You're a polymath. It's not helping. You need to wear one hat and stick with it. And I committed to comedy. And it panned out. I mean, ridiculously, I've been a comedian. I identify as a comedian. I've uh, um, done, uh, become the grown-up that I am in the guise of comedian over two decades plus. And um, so a weird thing with modern life is going back to that and saying, oh, so with the way things are these days, I could start trying on some of my different hats. Of course, it's not as simple as that because various things have happened. Things creep back in. You know, it's like gardening. If you let a seed lay dormant in the soil, you think, oh, you'll forget about it. And suddenly you turn around and there's a plant that's three meters high, you know. So actually, I, well, first and most importantly, I I basically gave up being a musician. But as a comedian, I've become quite the musician. (laughs) (laughs) and that's such a long slow glacial um organic process that it's very much still happening in fact that's the major change to my act in 2022 is my relationship with music in my act has still changed again Mm. now which is always what keeps it exciting for me i mean it's a battle really i'm always trying to fight you wouldn't believe it to hear me play or to know what i do but i try and fight off being a musical comedian with a stick I'm just losing the battle. You try and fight off... Why do you fight off being a musical comedian? I'm paranoid about it, really. I think I'm worried that I I would never want to be showing off. I would never want to be seen as someone who was trying to get my serious music into my act. I see myself first and foremost as a clown. And I love the purity of that, of being on stage, just doing something silly. You know, not not too much plan, not too much confession, Mm. not too much authority, not too much future or past. These these are all clown things. Stand-up needs loads of other things. That's why it's a good dialogue, because stand-up needs needs biography. More so, this is an answer to what you were saying about this, biography in stand-up is much more important now. When when a a comedian, when a young comedian gets on stage in front of a young audience, that audience want to know that comedian's story. That's absolutely right. Biography. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. And some people like, you know, I spoke to someone the other day who was dissing it and saying, well, that's not a set, it's a blog. And it's like, yeah, that's right. Because post-internet, in the modern world, in the days of all kinds of social networks, this is what we do. We share our lives. Whereas, you know, retrospectively, you walk on stage in Jonglers in 2005 and try and share your life. They go, we don't want to hear about that. Tell us some jokes. So that is the, I think, I think in terms of rhythm, I mean, there's loads of other things that correlate with that. Like, you know, uh, identity there's all kinds of other things about comedy that that's links to that I think we should come back to but I think that um, so yeah in terms of I think that my idea of what I ought to be as a comedian didn't allow for me to play music um, and then initially when I put music in, it's very much in that, in that mode, in that clown mode. What's uh, Johnny Carson said to Steve Martin? You will use everything you've ever done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all his ridiculous and silly jokes, he'd just end up in his act sooner or later because it's just stuff to do. That's what the clowns, the, the idea of content, even all the stuff we're talking about, biography, you know, blooming uh, uh, grief, trauma. Yeah. It, uh, fundamentally, from my understanding of what comedy is, uh, it's just stuff to do, stuff to be doing when you're on stage and specifically stuff where you'll find complicity, stuff which I can talk about or do that the audience will go, I recognise that and now I'm with you and we're meeting in the middle in the space between us. 
I want to get into the identity thing now from the perspective of biography. And when you said you're, when you were talking earlier about your identity as a comedian, and that's something we spoke about. We had a really fun train journey together where mm-hmm. we kind of we did this. We did this. We it's kind of pre- didn't have your cold. I know, man. I always <laughs> think that. Um, but uh, we were talking about identity and almost like unpicking one's identity from the identity that we that comedy gave us or that mm-hmm. we invested in comedy. Um, and also I'm interested in that uh, you use the word ought as in should like yeah. this is what I should do this is what I ought to do or I ought not to do as a comedian yeah. because I think our ideas about what a comedian is were probably forged at similar times you left fused before me but um, but that idea of oneself as a comedian and what oh god the word oneself ruined this this is ruining this sentence <laughs> you're, far, you're too, okay, you're far okay. too patronising I mean a thing but oneself yeah. Christ um the idea of yourself as a comedian and what a comedian should and shouldn't do and therefore what you're allowed to do or not do yeah, yeah, yeah. is kind of nuts. It is a, as listeners who've bothered to listen to the 399 episodes preceding these will know is an obsession of mine. That idea that you start off with an idea in your head of what a comedian is and then you try and do an impression of that yeah. rather than, as some of us do very early on, going like very few comics do this they go oh this is an opportunity to be completely free and do whatever the hell i want to do and then they embrace that yeah no i think uh there there are or at least there in a healthy world there should be as many types of comedian as there are comedians yeah that's not really the case because in good ways the comedians uh tribalize into groups of types of comedy and in bad ways comedians snobberize i just made that word up oh, I and uh dis ways of doing comedy and other ways yeah. of doing comedy and then there's good things things that should die out you know i think that the the interesting thing for me is um, I suppose when we talk about this is that as a human in life I'm always uh, right on uh, politically correct what used to feel quite old school to be like a sort of I mean obviously I'm about to claim that people were right on in the 80s and there were loads of of things from the modern dialogue of doing the right thing um, which we didn't have then you know no one ever checked their privilege in Mm -hmm. 1988 Um, but um Nevertheless, that's where I come from. But from a performance point of view, I've always been uh, very... Uh, I'm very decisive about what I think works and what doesn't. And I'm not just in my own work. You know, I'm, uh, I like directing. I was a director of uh, theatre and uh, performance before I was a comedian. And it's been really nice to come back to that. But in 2022, I find that really interesting because I think it's really healthy and I think I'm better at understanding how other people's comedy works you know how someone can do it and it's someone I respect and like I'm not talking about things I actively disapprove of or that are old fashioned I'm just Mm. talking about good things someone I respect and like and is good can speak a completely different language of comedy to me yeah and I get I get that that works but on the other hand I can look at my comedy and still say don't do that don't do this so it's uh, where are the where are the rules coming from now you know mm-hmm. what I mean if, if you're good and you're open minded and you know all the different ways it can be done and you put the, the social politics of comedy to one side then who makes the rules and the answer is still you or still me you know what I mean and mm-hmm. there are rules it's just what are they the um and that's the that's the game, you know. I look at it, and then you find you think that sometimes some things you will never change. I will never, I'm never going to get on stage and say I want to talk about this. 
I'm always going to try and come from a point of view of common ground. And I did talk about this. Last yes, setting on. the agenda. Yeah, you setting don't like to set the agenda. Just like, and I totally respect it when other people do. It just doesn't feel happy coming out of me. Mm-hmm. And I know how to bend that rule. I know how to guide the conversation we would be having back to my stuff. I revel in the autobiography of my set. It's just that I have to still have to kind of sneak up on it. And uh, But on the other hand... Like I say, I've got to the point now where I do songs and they start and finish. It sounds ridiculous. It's like, of course you do. It's like, no, no. I, I've always done bits, even if I have the, the instinct to do a song. Well, first of all, we've got to kind of justify it. Right? I'm going to kind of perform my way into it. I can't say, here's my song. And, uh, and if I do, there'll be a joke, a meta joke about it being a song. Like this, if, I, if you hear me saying this next song is about, then the chances are that song is less than 30 seconds long. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, there's levels to it. But I've just tried to be, you know, this is an aspect of my personality that I've let myself have right now, which is singer-songwriter. I'm doing songs that last as long as songs that are original piece of music by me. And I I, I mean, I've done that before, but I was never comfortable with it before. Mm -hmm. I don't think... I think it's a really interesting thing for me to talk about, but I don't think anyone watching my set would 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 identify the difference or see this. Oh, it's incredible development. I've got to see Rob. Well, oh, it's roughly the same. Yes, it's roughly the same, <laughs> but it's a bit different. Yeah, I, it's funny, isn't it? I'm, one of the things I've become aware of, and just as a side note, one of the things I'm inescapably aware of now that the landscape of podcasting and comedy podcasting is very different now to how it was 10 years ago is like, oh, it's two white guys pontificating about their act. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. And, and pontificating to the extent that we're like, as you say, like, well, the thing that I've really developed that is solely of interest to me and my obsession with it and from the outside is indistinguishable I just yeah. want to kind of mark that because I'm sure I do exactly the same thing that I yeah. go on enormous well, journeys you know of... something I knew I knew to, to, you know, to be honest about this I knew when this was happening I, I came back to gigs and I thought something's changed and uh, and it was like a little... Post-pandemic, you mean? Yeah, you yeah. Back, yeah. And it was just a slight shift it was a long pause I didn't do any gigs in 2021 I just you know so, so is that right? Anyway I didn't do in between lockdown two and three or whatever i didn't do any gigs and um yeah it was in immediate it's like oh wow so it's not very different but something fundamental has shifted in my perception of what's happening on stage i mean it might even be that it is imperceptible but it's different it's different for yes me. yes and uh, and that's exciting that that can happen and it, in my career i suppose it's always had something to do with music and at another level it's always been about getting closer and closer to my true self to to Go back to what you were saying about when we started out. I think I came in a third way. You know, I think people either they're on stage because they want to talk or they have something to express, uh, or they're on stage because they want to, as you say, do comedy like those Mm -hmm. other people they've seen doing comedy. And these are fantastically valid and indeed very normal ways in. I think I found had an I didn't. I didn't have an act. I had a persona. I'd spent a lot of time on stage getting laughs and showing off. You Without... referred obliquely in episode one to something like falling over in your pajamas. Possibly, did you say in Eastern Europe? Yeah, I, I used to talk, I used and to we, we sort of for a gag we glossed over it at the time, but I never actually knew what that was. Yeah, well, I, you, this is the thing. I did so much what is essentially stand-up before I discovered it as a thing in my life. It just, I'm so naturally oblique. I so, it's so 
stupidly normal for me to kind of do something that other people are doing all on my own in the wilderness for a decade mm. and they go oh do you know what I mean I taught my all the musical instruments I play I taught myself to play all the running I've ever done I ran for years before I talked to anyone else about running or how you approach running what it's for what it means in your life and and in terms of perform, performance and like being on stage I used to get up at school make announcements in assembly I joined bands but when you look back the band thing comes up after the getting on stage thing. Then I um, used to do cabaret, anything, just get up, do stuff. Bit of bit of sketch, a bit of stand-up, bit of music, bit of falling over. Falling over was always huge in my young performing life. Then I got into this theatre and education company who I worked with on and off for like a decade. And it was great because it, there was very little stress on education. The main thing was, although there was literature stuff, the main thing was it was in English. And it was very much inspired by clown... Um, what's the word clown theory clown ideas okay from the uh, late 20th century uh, which had very little to do with big shoes and, and red noses and a lot yeah. to do with being on stage with no future no past and you know Golier Lecoq all this stuff I didn't work with these guys but they came through I did actually I did a course with Golier but it came later but I, I got worked for this theatre company and we did these shows in English mm-hmm. but the whole discipline discipline that's another good word for it was two people on stage playing together no script Uh, with an audience and I honestly spent ages working on that like what are the rules of that what works what doesn't work Um, with a specific other person or, uh, or just or, any, any, any two any people. people. I mean, not, yeah. not any people. You've got to find people who are going to be good at it. Mm. But then the quintessence of those tours in those days was that you'd put together a tour of four people who would have a fantastic time together mm. and then break off into twos to do shows, sometimes for weeks at a time, come back together and then swap. So each partnership would have its own magic. And of course, in four people, that's six partnerships. Mm. Is that right? Is it? Two, those, it two, is. Two, those two, those two, those two. Well, there's you've a mathematical, there's a math, there's a mathematical formula for this. If you've got two people, yeah, you've got uh, two, well, one, one partnership. Yeah. If you've got three people, you've got three partnerships, and if you've got four people, you've got six partnerships. And there's a formula that goes on and on. You have to put a one over all the numbers. I don't know what it is, but I was talking to my dad about it, uh, my late great dad, once years ago, and he knew the formula straight away. I was oh. like, "God, you're so clever. How did you know?" And he said. It's to do with betting. It's to do with accumulators. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw a video recently which explained how Dobble works. Oh, it's you know Dobble? Yeah, I know. How can it possibly work? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Anyone who doesn't know Dobble, you get little circular cards with pictures, and each each card shares one picture in common with every other card. Yeah. But how can that possibly be? And I, saw, <laughs> I saw a maths explanation on a video which I understood for the duration of the video. And Have you seen Spider Man: uh, No Way Home? Yes. Um, this reminds me without plot spoiling um, of the wonderful moment wonderful on so many levels when you think about it when Spider-Man is in Doctor Strange's special effect and says oh I see how this works (laughs) (laughs) oh it makes me happy but I don't I like not to think about these things too hard because otherwise you think about them too hard like you know when I'm putting the cutlery away in a drawer and I go no I suppose none of us used any forks yesterday (laughs) Um, as we stay in this uh, sphere of what were we talking about? Um, clown discipline oh, you, and being I didn't in the answer your question pr- about pajamas. 
No, go on. Answer uh, the question about pajamas. Eventually, the, the, one of the tours we did, which was the basic English language show, so the sort of purest clown, because it was just that it was in English. That was the educational factor. Mm-hmm. So the most educational thing you could do would, was to get the most out of everyone in the room in performance. Because that meant talking and listening in English. And, uh, and also you had this absolute, um, safe space of being in another country speaking a different language. It's just such a good mask. Yeah. Uh, so we would go, and it was basically a really, uh, and it dates it brilliantly, it was a really clownish, cartoonish spoof of the big breakfast. Okay. So we'd just walk into these schools in Holland, Belgium, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, Germany, Switzerland. That's not all of them. Mm. And, uh, and say, so, in, in pajamas and say, what do you have for breakfast? And the ridiculousness would start from there. <laughs> and I love this, did it for years, trained people in it. And then I went to do comedy gigs and I thought, oh, I'm great. I'm sorted. I know, I know how to be on stage. I'm very comfortable on stage, which was a real advantage at the time because being comfortable on stage was, we talked about this last time. People, personable young people. Mm-hmm. Let's face it, comedy 20 years ago, personable young men, mm. um, who are comfortable being on stage uh, were not there, there weren't that many you still had that kind of 80s thing of people being uncomfortable yeah. like being sort of like like they've been in their garret mm-hmm. scribbling away until this moment you think what do we mean well look back think about Stuart Lee uh, uh, Garrett <laughs> yeah <laughs> you say names I'll say Garrett or not Garrett <laughs> Garrett, <laughs> Garrett yeah. caravan yeah exactly <laughs> Well, this is good, isn't it? I feel like I should have brought in games. (laughs) Well, I don't have any games to hand. I've just got Polytopia on my phone, but I've played it so comprehensively, I can't ever really touch it again. And what a a convivial atmosphere it is here at ComCom Towers, which is a cellar. (laughs) That would be a good name. Maybe I should call the cellar ComCom Towers. That's I like that. Um, So uh, more from Rob soon. A joy to speak to him. And thank you. We recorded this one in the the QI... um, I don't know what it is. Well, it's above the QI offices. So I guess it's kind of the QI podcast studio where they often record no such thing as a fish. So um, that might be why we are uh, sounding more informed than usual. Um, So uh, more of this soon. Thank you. I want to I'll do I'll do the bulk of the chat at the end. But let's let's just do this bit now. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. I love this show. Um, and occasionally it frustrates me, as it, as anything would when you've been doing it for 10 years. Um, but I do love it. And I love you. And I love the um, I love that I get to talk to you in this in this way from the towers. <laughs> um, when I first started recording the show, I, I probably recorded the blurbs for maybe the first 80 to 100 episodes just uh, in my flat in London under a duvet. Uh, because the sound quality is fantastic. Little tip there for uh, junior podcasters among you. And now here I sit atop a tower, an inverted tower of bricks in Bristol, um, drinking coffee from from my Conan mug, no less. That's an exciting uh, retrospective thing that's happened in the last 10 years. Um, That, in a funny and direct way, wouldn't have happened without the podcast. So thank you very much for listening, because that was a wonderful thing and you helped that happen. Um... So uh, my point is, yes, thank you. Thank you for listening. It's been such a... uh, Oh, this is getting... This should all be (laughs) post-amble. Do you think that 10 years in, I should get a producer? Do you think so? Because 
Um, wonderful Nathan Wood, who edits and uploads the show. I call him the producer of the show, but he's not a producer in the sense that he chases me and makes me do things in advance. He is, and that's, nor should he, that's not what I've asked him to do. Um, but I, should I get someone that holds the whole thing together? Should I have had someone say to me two months ago, make some social art now for the for the episode 400 release, and then you won't need to beg for it in the ConCon Facebook group the day it happens? Um, I feel like I probably should, but then maybe there is something, I'm, I think ultimately what I'm hoping is that there's something charming and ramshackle about how fucking untogether I am. So maybe there's that. And hey, look, we outlasted Wittertainment. Boom. <laughs> Although obviously that's not going to end then. So um, uh, yes, thank you for listening. Liz, I'll, I'll waffle at you more at the end, but uh, I might as well spread that out so it becomes slightly easier to bear. More from Rob and more uh, available from Rob uh, on the uh, Insiders feed at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders if you would like to support the show. If you've been listening for 10 years thinking, well, I'll get around to supporting it one day, why not do that now? £2 a month or as much as you like, blah, 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 blah. Comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Right, let's get, let's finish this. And then you'll have the option to just turn off if you don't want to listen to more of me banging on. Which, let's face it, you always have that option. Rob Dip. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Pajamas were a good mask then and uh, having adventures. And that's where my comedy came from. Pajamas were a good mask. That's the that's crux something. of it, All isn't it? All kinds of things can be a good mask, you know. Anyway, that's... Go on. Oh, like, for example... Because that's the, that's the whole point about the red nose, isn't it? It's the smallest mask in the world. It's like you're operating behind a little... Yeah, yeah, that's mask. right. It's just a little yeah. signal. So I'm, not, I'm no longer um, um, tied in by the bounds of society. Do you have any such masks in your stand-up? Um, is your funny hair part of a mask? I, no, no, I think that's different. I think that is a... 
what funny hair? <laughs> I, think, I think that's about um, permission. That's uh, permission to laugh is huge in in performance, and I think that that uh, sometimes in stand up people can be snooty about it. It's really important. Um, if I can cite Milton Jones, who said it's not he doesn't have silly hair and a crazy jumper for the good of his health. It helps people get the jokes he's about yes, to tell. Gotcha. Yeah. It's permission to think of him as silly, so now he can laugh at his jokes. If he goes in looking like uh, he's about to head a meeting at a bank, then everyone goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. when he tells the jokes do you employ that do you have permission do you have elements of yourself or your appearance or your uh, the words you say or how you say them that invoke similar that kind of give people similar permission I think I've been playing against it forever because I think that I, that that persona that's what it was I'm here on stage it's going to be silly you know yes. let's not forget I used to be uh, uh, cartoonishly round all over not, not huge we're not talking about obesity I'm just talking about circles <laughs> and, uh, if you had you a, were quite circular at one yeah and, there's, and, and it's a smiley you know I'm the only person who knows me with a serious face because I'm smiling all day mm. so you come on me and go eee and that's sort of that, that the over egg delivery which has gradually been dying down you know but it comes around I was again it's, it's that conflict with myself I was thinking over egg delivery playing music these are things that other people might think of as cheap and of course other people when I express them that's me that's me saying that yeah but it's all me. It's all very me. But I think the permission to laugh thing is something that I comes automatically with my persona, whereas other people get to it in different ways. Like, it can be difficult if you look like a rock legend, mm-hmm. uh, and that's part of your act. And then you grow through time, and like any grown-up human, you, you I don't know, maybe get your hair cut or yeah. change your look. and then But your act, your voice, your comedy voice will sound the same, and that will change your relationship with the audience. But it won't necessarily change it in a bad way. I mean, specifically, I changed my... I d- I'm not as round anymore. Yeah. And that means it looks less likely that I'll be funny. I think we talked about this. It looks less likely that I'll be funny when I get to the mic. No, I'm not saying it looks highly unlikely. I do have silly hair and a silly face. You've got a silly it face. And not, it's not that your face is silly. What you do with your face is silly. You have a silly face. There body. are often people in my gigs. Uh, no, there is often a person at my gig who just tunes into finding this funny and it's not it's like, <laughs> for the oh, benefit God, of saying, the listener Robert's gesture to his face at last <laughs> yeah. right. and then they start laughing a lot and I'm like oh I'm going really well here and then I think wait a minute it's not me there's nothing I'm doing you know I, I could stop I'm going to stop doing comedy I could say um, do you, I'm just going to go to the bar do you need anything and that person would go <laughs> you're so funny when you talk and there's nothing uh, you know complimentary to me as a comedian in that at all but I've learnt to at least make it part of what I do because I get it. It's ridiculous. You know, I you, it's, it's not, it's not that your appearance is ridiculous. It is how you inhabit your appearance. I'm ridiculous. Like I mean, you, I... you have a generous mouth, which means when you do an enormous smile, it's fucking enormous. Yeah, that's that alone when I try and make it go all wide. Yeah, I for mean, sure. You know, if you need to hide an apple, I think I'm, <laughs> I'm there for you. Um, I'm quite a serious person. As you know, stroke, you might be surprised, but you know, like we can sit down and talk. We don't need these microphones to have a philosophical discussion about what it all means and that's not just when we're sitting on trains I'm you know I I I think I said last time that I always thought I'd grow up and become some kind of serious artist a writer director creator singer songwriter very but because music you know miserable songs are where I live musically that's another reason it took so long for them to end up on my set because a silly song is not a proper song. A proper song is a heartbreaking song. A proper uh, song is Mary by Big Thief, not one of the songs in my set. And um, 
and I and I found in becoming a comedian. I thought, oh, I can let it go. I wasn't that serious person. I'm this ridiculous person. I can use all that thought and uh, and uh, wit and intelligence, if I may, and feed it all into this ridiculous clown. And everything in my life is in balance. And I've cured my early urges to smoke gitan and be incredibly thin and uh, just make statements and then look away silently for minutes <laughs> at a time. And that guy didn't exist. It was a, it was a, it was a, uh, uh, you know, it was a stupid, um, uh, immature daydream. And now I'm in a third place where I think, no, I am quite a serious person. I was quite a serious person. I became the ridiculous person who's very real and, in fact, you know, will always be me um, as a, some kind of, uh, what do you call it, um, Defense. Uh, it's a uh, it's a it's a mechanism for interacting with people, specifically to make them like me without putting myself at any risk of vulnerability mm. or sharing my true self. You know, it's it's basically advanced shyness, um, uh, or to put it another way, that whole extrovert introvert dialogue from modern years. Another thing we didn't have in the old days. Mm. I mean, I uh, uh, another thing. Exactly like we're saying about music. You know, when people have massive realizations late in life, huge things, you know, massive life changes, um, a lot of good ones, good and bad ones in the last couple of years. For I mean, good and bad for the individual. And uh, whereas this one is just like the music thing. It's like, oh, it's such a massive realization, but it didn't doesn't really change anything. Yes. Which is that I, which I thought, oh, I'm one of those extrovert introverts. Yeah. I need the downtime. I need time with myself and my gregariousness is a symptom. <laughs> and I just thought, oh! And honestly, then I just suddenly the, the ridiculous, serious person that I thought that I'd killed um, said, yeah, that's right. You don't actually... I don't know why you need to go out and impress all those people every day. They're never going to like you. You're a stranger. They'll just enjoy it and go home and you'll still feel empty inside. I remember reading about extrovert, extroversion, introversion, or whatever the proper way of saying that is, mm-hmm. and finding it, for me, it was one of those, oh, this is deliciously seductive, that's me, I recognise myself in that, in a way that always makes me feel very suspicious. As yeah, yeah, Darren like Brown if you read the medical read book. the horoscope, <laughs> and that applies to everyone, and everyone goes, God, that is me! Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So I find it very seductive, um, and uh, but I certainly... Like, is... Isn't that just being an extrovert? You're an extrovert, but every extrovert needs d- downtime. Yeah, I suppose there's some truth in that. But I wasn't in the middle of reading the book. I was in the middle of lockdown thinking, why do I hate Zoom? And mm. it's because I, I haven't got control. I haven't got contacts. I can't use all my tricks. Wait, they're tricks. Yeah, right. This okay. is the dialogue, you know, and okay. realising that things that I thought made my life and made me happy and do make my life and make me happy, like meetings, rehearsals, gigs being in a dressing room at a gig they're wonderful things they're all exhausting i mean i suppose like you say maybe that's true of everyone but i just come away thinking and it's yeah because you're on because you're because you're, i'm on yeah because i'm on that's the thing and i think and now i feel i'm in a third place is um, because of course i'm not ridiculous of course i still love being on stage of course going back to gigging i see that it gives a really pure non-cynical hit of joy and uh, validation and uh, that there's no match for you know there's no there's nothing else in my life that makes me feel a bit like a rock star like doing a comedy gig and that's not just because there's a guitar in my act that's true of comedy gigs for mm-hmm. people you know mm-hmm. they make you feel like they give you a bit of a glow on 
And there's nothing quite like that. So I don't not want to do that. But on the other hand, I think that they think, okay, there's a... You know, even the most apparently confident performer, there's got to be a sort of neediness there, of course. And we sort of joke about it and everything. But that's something interesting. And I think coming full circle, making it impossible to cut any of this conversation out, uh, (laughs) is the sense that maybe that is something healthy in the whole wider dialogue of comedy. This sense that, A, comedy is biographical. People want to hear want people to share their lives with them and be that comedy is all different things. It's not just uh, a bunch of big groups of people getting drunk in a big building in front of stage with a microphone who's going to come on and impress. And if someone heckles, they'll put them down. Mm. That kind of uh, conflicty, combative, authority figure model is... uh, I think if comedy is going to be carry on forever, then then the, that model will become will start to look. I don't think it'll necessarily die away because there's a you need a you need someone in the middle to listen to. Mm-hmm. But I think the obvious. I'm going to stand here and tell you what I think about the world. I think that's old fashioned, and I, I, I use the words old fashioned carefully because sometimes old fashioned things are absolutely amazing, and you keep and people keep using them forever. You know, look at <laughs> look at Aston Martins or cormorants. <laughs> <laughs> but I think things have changed. You know, I think there's yeah. a there's a democracy to the deal, and if you do want to stand on stage and say, uh, you know, let's let's include all the aspects of this and say, here I am, you know, white. English-speaking guy <laughs> of a certain age, and I'm going to tell you what I think, then more so than ever before, you're going to have to earn it. Hmm. And that's good. Surely that's a healthy... Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because, like, for a long time, that, that sense from an audience that I associate with them, with what you're talking about, that kind of, like, you need to impose your authority, that thing I've always associated with Glaswegian audiences, the lad's got to take his knocks. No, he doesn't. Why, why would he? Do you know what I mean? Like, why is it that the price of being able to express some things you find funny about the world yeah. is you, the, the price you have to pay is your ability to defeat hecklers? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Whereas because you, that's, no, just because, because, that's just the shell. Because that, that's I, like suggesting people who do not have the ability to deal well with hecklers in combative environments do not have a right to speak or anything interesting to hear and all of this incredibly rich yeah, yeah. stuff that we know is But happening. in terms of how comedy works or used to work, there's definitely a truth to it. And it's not just about combat and it's not just about hecklers. It's about, it's about defensiveness, you know, because I can, I, I, I'm getting up on stage and sharing details about my life. And my natural urge is to literally, I'm th- I noticed this the other day, I'm, st- I'm trying to write something about it, how if I want to share something that is more kind of like, okay, I, early on in my set, I point, I tell people that I'm a vegan and that I run a lot. And the punchlines to the bits in both those bits is I call myself a name. <laughs> you know, I just I'll assume you'll hate me for that, and mm-hmm. I'll do it. Might do it. I'll do it for you. Mm. You know, and I put myself down, and that sounds so. Say it here, and it sounds really crass. And but that's what will work. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to that lack of vulnerability, that the 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 sense of not putting yourself out there. That a comedy had, b I had, c we're hoping is going away. It's there. It's there in rooms. We're not. That's not just comedians' paranoia. You know, if you put together 
the more people you put in a room, the more danger of a sense of the common denominator there is. Yeah. And playing to the common denominator means shooting things down, taking things... Even if you go, you know, great comedians doing exciting stuff about uh, different life choices, still have to frame them in a, <laughs> how ridiculous would it be to be me? I mean, I think this is essentially, this is not a problem. I'm not making a note about performance or audiences. It's a problem with the form. It's a problem with stand-up. It's not a great, you know, live stand-up with a person behind a mic is not as, as healthy a way to share this stuff as some other forms are, you know, I don't know. TikTok, I think, mm-hmm. is probably a better way to show exactly who you are and let people take or leave it. <laughs> compared to... Tw- oh, that's added a whole other dimension to that thought experiment. Yeah. Um, is it a good way... Is stand-up comedy a good way to show people who you really are? And your, your idea is that not necessarily because it contains an inherent element of playing to the lowest common denominator or needing to. Yeah, I think that sums it up. And I think that it's important to, you know, I'm just observing this. I think it's really important to look at this model. I did a really nice, really middle-class gig yesterday. So there was none of this. No one bellowed at me to get off. I didn't have to win anyone round. Mm. It wasn't uh, um, Larry in the Mm. slightest. But there's still a sense that you have to that whoever you are in the stand-up situation, situation, stand-up situation, as if you lay your cards on the table, this is who I am, this is my truth, this is my lived experience, that from, to make stand-up work, you have to find some tessellation, some sense where that jigsaw piece fits into the jigsaw that is everyone in the room. Can I can I jump in I jump in here? Yeah. I saw a comedian last night who said, Oh, I'm a I've got I'm a late adopter of running and I've started a running podcast and and like all comedians. And I thought that's a little bit unfair. <laughs> like two of the comedians in the room who aren't you. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So uh, um, is it something that all comedians are doing? I don't know. Starting a podcast, running for sure, and starting but a not running and starting a podcast. I'm so I did run the other day. Yeah, um, three point three miles, which for me is a I, I believe the term is a PB. Excellent. I haven't run forever, and I hate it. Yeah, but this and was did you quite run fun. Three point three miles without stopping. Yes, it's fantastic. And yeah. it's huge. That it felt, felt, that's felt it absolutely incredible. It was all nice and flat, and I was with a friend who had a special Apple Watch that enabled her to tell us exactly where we were any one time, um, and. Uh, uh, I personally, just to give you context on my uh, journey with exercises, I hate and fear exercise because the circus beat it out of me in 1997. <laughs> I hated it already to begin with and shouldn't have been in the circus. Um, but uh, uh, I have over the last two years, it is now two years and two months, I've done some exercise every single day. Yeah. Um, the only way I could start doing that was by starting on January the 1st and making one of those Seinfeld joke writing unshakable commitments to always every single day do yeah. something well you know I, I, I'm this kind of person I've made some commitments like that myself yeah but I realised late on I always think oh, I've been so strong I'm so clever but the, the, the other side of that is well I'm good at that you know what I mean I've, I, that's easy you know I said to myself once I'm going to run three times a week and I never haven't I run a lot more than that now but like I was never going to not it's like I don't know. Um, I can't make commitments like that. It's literally only the, the same. Fact it's it was just, a, it's the just the shape of the commitment. Okay, fine. Well, it, I mean, it's been 
the, my point is it's been life-changing. It's been life-changing in one key respect, which is that I no longer spend uh, multiple minutes a day thinking, God, I'm a piece of shit, I don't do any exercise. Yeah, <laughs> do you know what well, I mean? I, just I, taking that out of my life I, Because I do, we do, me and Paul Tongerson do running commentary, which of is course. where we run and talk whilst running about running in life. And comedians running, it's good. And I... I, I, I I think you'd be interested in me talking slightly more about that. But on that, <laughs> I, um, I uh, was talking to Ed Gamble, and I was talking about his because he's you know a good runner, and uh, we did the London Marathon the, the same oh, yeah. time a couple of years ago, and uh, he was just really good. At, we were talking about rules, and uh, I can't remember whether it was. I think it might have been to do with New Year's resolutions. I don't know whether we talking about food, drink, or exercise, that kind of stuff. And he was just saying, just got to be careful what rules you give yourself, because even the most positive thing can just turn into a stick you beat yourself up with. And uh, I just, I've, I've just remembered that almost daily since. You know, it's so easy to say, I'm going to do this, and then spend the rest of your life going, I hate myself for not doing that. It's like, well, just take back the initial I'm going to, and you're all right. You know what I mean? Because we're so good at being horrible to ourselves. Yeah, I'm. I, I think I've done lots of that in the past, and I think um, this is the only. <laughs> unshakable commitment I've mm. ever made that that I've stuck to. I think it's the only one. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, it feels it feels really. I'm not here to talk about me exercising, but um, exercise your right to do so. But <laughs> but let's talk about your book specifically. Oh, you really did come away from it. Was that your exercise? Well, before we come away from your <laughs> three mile run, I want to know if you're going to do a park run. I don't know yet what I'm doing because the the exercise that I do every day is either yoga or a hit workout mm. and I've really got into probably a rut now I've been through two years of like hey I'm doing it oh Christ I don't want to do it oh I can do it oh I can I can slack off a bit and still consider I've done it you know that mm-hmm. kind of pathway through it and then going for a run with my mate Jenny the other day and going um, and really coming away going God, I didn't know I could do that. I shall feel smug all day. Good for me. And then, crucially, saying to her, let's do it again next Thursday, which Mm. I couldn't because I got COVID and then it was half term. And Mm. now I'm not, in a way that I would have been previously, I know that in my heart I'm going to do it again and go, let's go the following week or something and let's do it. I'm not putting loads of pressure on myself. I'm just going to do that nice, fun thing with a mate to chat to. And... uh, and be- because the other way is if I do that then I don't have to do a hit that day because that will tick the box mm-hmm. in my exercise so that's positive but I do feel more positive than I ever have about about doing that like I've flogged myself through runs occasionally over the last couple of years and before then and I just hate them and I, I particularly if it's cold it really plays merry hell with my asthma mm-hmm. and that's kind of so it just breathing hurts and I'm like this isn't fun I fucking stop um, but I know that I'm going to, and honestly, it was a very good time for me to read bits of your book and go, oh, you, you very, you really passionately and articulately described the feelings that go on when you're listening to music. And, and the very last bit of your book made me properly tear up. I didn't read all of it, but I dipped into chapters. And the last two chapters, I was properly having a little tear up moment on the train oh, because good. you had nailed that last word, which I won't give away, but that feeling, you know, yeah. it's that's 
Good, man. Well, I'm glad to hear it, and uh, I'm glad to hear you talking about my book, Running Tracks, The Playlist and Places, that made me run a half of all <laughs> profits which go to Parkinson's UK. I, uh, and it's a great concept as well. It's a great concept. Well, this is what I want to say. You know, uh, the, it is the plug, but I really believe it. I'm an evangelist about this, and it's really interesting because I've become someone who talks about running a lot, and that's something, you know, talk about being paranoid about things people won't like you for. You know what I mean? Whether being on, you know, as a comedian particularly, we know what these things are. I can get up on stage and I mean I can slag myself off on stage for anything I can slag myself off for being I don't know what would what's what's ridiculous to an audience about me I'm feminist yeah. I'm vegan I run I talk about running all the time I love my kids <laughs> <laughs> and so on you know what I mean I'm, I'm I'm that guy that's that's the you know which is obviously it should be shot down you know but that's the idea but anyway um Nevertheless, and I don't. I was also going to say to you, you should go to Parkrun, and then I'm like, oh, an evangelist for Parkrun, like there aren't any of those. Um, but you should, because you, instead of seeing your friend Jenny, you or with your friend Jenny, you see a whole bunch of nice people doing a nice thing together, and it's got everything that's good about running and that that you want from it. Everything that's wonderful about doing like a marathon or something. Loads of people of all different kinds coming together to share a moment but also do their individual thing. And it's 5K, so you can make it. And just for the philosophical experience of comparing it to comedy and the online world, just comparing communities, it's an incredible thing. You should definitely go to a park run. And if you're touring, go to a park run in different places where you're doing gigs. I have to say that is... Because um, we, we're not just... Uh, we're not just talking about running here. We're talking about the links between running and comedy and the links between running and the lifestyle of a comedian. So mm. that, I did do that. I remember one in, uh, it wasn't a park run, but I took myself for a run in Luxembourg when I was doing some gigs there for a couple of days. I've done that. And oh my God, running around Luxembourg going, why is this country regarded as a punchline? This is absolutely I've fucking brilliant. Here. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And you're running through it going, oh, this is how I'm getting to know this place. And like you talk in the book about running in Manchester and and, you know, down scary alleyways, new relationships with places, you've been going relationships with places you've been going to for years. But it's running, so what a great thing and you to get do. into when you're grown up. It's new relationships with places you've been going to for years. Oh, uh, Rob is pointing at his head there to yes. underline that analogy. The, the thing with going to Manchester also works as a, as, a, as, a, as a simile for what what it can do for you. But yes, I was going to say, it's so nice what you said about my book, because I still think, and this is something I would love to be part of what I do going forward, not least because I don't know what I'm going to do going forward, like so many of us, you know, what is my job now? I, yes, I love doing stand-up, but I can't, I'm, uh, that's part of what I do now, it's not mm. what I do now, and that makes the stand-up better, if you can combine it with some podcasting, some writing of books, some radio work, you know, like I do. But at part of that, I would really like, and I'm still looking for someone sort of in, more important in the media than me to pick up on it, I don't think people are having this conversation about running. I think the way the media talks about running is out of date and they still, and because people, runners talk this way as well, so it's fair enough, but it's all about achievement and it comes back to athletics. So generally mm. it's about how fast you did it, how far you did it, who did it first, how, That's how much all of those things turn me off. All of those things actively make me not yeah. interested. But the trouble is that they're also brilliant things. You know, it's wonderful. I, uh, you know, I, I've, if you get into it, you run faster, you run further, you set yourself goals, you do them. The dialogue is also brilliant. It's not just athletics, not just a sport. You will see absolute heroism of normal people doing these amazing, you know, they're wonderful things, not to be dismissed. But 
there's no talk about what running, I think, has become, which is something that everyone who's listening now knows that you either run yourself or you know someone likes to go for a run. And they could be anyone. It could be any age, running any distance, any gender. It's just something people do. You know, like, I don't know, listen to music or eat. And uh, I'm not saying that, you know, everyone runs like everyone eats, but probably as many people get excited about listening to music as run. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's, it's, it's part of the fabric of life, which means that when you talk about it in books or magazines or the radio or TV, I think you're missing something if you constantly come back to numbers and achievements. And yeah, I think there's two different problems with it. One, it's about that kind of impact, that conflict. I'm going to push myself to this terrible thing. I, I did yoga uh, one day and I walked into the bathroom of feeling really meditative and mindful and whatever you want to call it afterwards. And the, a running top that I owned was on the bathroom floor. Nice. Well done, Rob. Tidy that up. And it said on the front of it, finisher because it was from an event I'd done. I was like, well, that's a shame. Because what really finishes? You know, you just run on, just tie it all together. (laughs) (laughs) And I I tried to talk about the podcast, this thing that there's no such thing as a finish line. A finish line is a useful concept, but it's not actually, there's no such thing as a finish line. You're not going to go over the finish line and then never, you know, stop moving forward. Are you? It's just an abstract concept that people apply that because it's of use to them and that's great and yeah sure when i run marathons once i go over the finish line i stop running but you know <laughs> it's still just a concept that i'm making use of it's not a solid thing there is a big link there with the way i'm constantly saying on this podcast that there's no such thing as the industry and there's no such thing as you know it, like what i mean when i say that is this is a useful concept that we can kind of draw a circle around a bunch of satellite gigs and yeah. go hey that's the industry and you're in it or you're not or you can work you can apprehend it and go oh that's my relationship to it if you find it convenient to do so equally you can ignore that loads of people think it exists and that is also connected to that wonderful uh, Simon Munnery line which changed my life for a good three years before I kind of calmed down a bit and went oh no no it's just a nice manifesto you know it's not a race it's a dance um, that which, honestly, for three years, that made me so happy about stand-up comedy, and then the kind of the old habitual kind of worries about oh, I'm not winning it though, and that kind of <laughs> thing, they crept back in. So when I think it's not a race, it's a dance. Obviously, with running, it's often a race. Yeah, is it a dance as well? Well, they say about parkrun. People mock. Uh, it doesn't have to be parkrun. There's more to running than parkrun. But we were talking about it. Um, and and parkrun is basically a bunch of strangers get together who gradually become friends. I would imagine after a while, yeah. get together in a park and do a timed but no one cares about. Yeah, the it. thing is, like it's three, not a the, race. The articles so of a, faith are free, weekly, timed. Yep. So that means it becomes defined. It means you go exactly five kilometers and it starts at a given time. But that just gives it a format. But the thing about it is, that's what's beautiful about it is, the, you know, everyone says it's not a race and people go, it's not a race. That's because, and it really links to what you've just been saying, it's not a race unless you want it to be. So there are people at Parkrun who will race it they'll run it as fast as they can they won't just run it as fast as they can they'll make sure they're in front of other people who are running around the same speed as them mm. so you know it's not and similarly with comedy there are people who are trying to win comedy and some of them do yeah it's not not a race i suppose mm. it might be easier to say it's not just a race or it doesn't have to be a race mm. because the beautiful thing about it is and this is why it's a metaphor this is what um is great about yeah modern comedy marathons life whatever you think is that Whatever it is to you, that's what it is. In running, anyone who runs is a runner. 
that's that's the rule of it you know what I mean and, and that's what's difficult about comedy because anyone who runs as a runner, runner if you think I'm going to go for a run tomorrow and you go out the door and you run until you think oh, oh I can't run anymore which could be like measurable in in two digits of yards yeah. then you're a runner you went for a run that's it that's that's the rule you know so then if you then you're another person you go out the next day and you run 500 miles in one go well done incredible achievement but democracy those two people are the same they're two members of the running community and that's also true of comedy. So if you think, oh, I've been doing this for years, or I expect this much money, or why haven't I got that job? And then someone says, I'm a comedian too. And you say, have you done a gig? And they say, not yet. They're a comedian, or they will be when they do that gig. Mm-hmm. You know, running and run, running, listening to music is so basic and important to me. But it's like every time I talk about it to other people, it's like, wow, that's so crazy. It's like, it isn't crazy. Everyone's doing it. I couldn't believe in the book that there is, that people will sometimes say to one another at runs, this is for proper runners, no headphones allowed. Mm-hmm. What that's, the fuck, man? Yeah, I think that people would claim that that doesn't happen. That happens. That's for sure. See, that's one of those bullshit things that makes me not want to hang out with runners. Or yeah, do yeah, but don't hold it against people who run. Yeah. That's not fair. That means that you're, you're siding with the people who run who think that they're proper runners and the other runners aren't proper runners. No, it would be, I wouldn't hold it against runners. I just, it would stop me from wanting to but go then, and involve myself. And then you get to what running. I'm saying. You look at modern life, you know, look at, look at how many people are running. I just think that there are, there are un, um, unrepresented masses of runners. In fact, I think it's connected to all this stuff because I think that that's a very uh, alpha and very often sort of male thing. So I'm a proper runner, whereas there's a very kind of uh, uh, non-gendered, be-who-you-are running community, listening to, not just listening to music, but listening to apps and things and just living their running life the way that modern people do. That's the thing, is that all these tensions and problems we think about, they'll just die away as young people whose relationships with this stuff are formed through uh, apps and the internet which are in some ways really healthily and naturally democratic, all these um, slightly silly distinctions become ridiculous in and of themselves. The best moment I've ever had whilst running came on the towpath in Hackney near Victoria Park when um, a runner ran past me. And I say that, like, I am not a runner. I mean, by your standards, I'm a runner. But this is during one of the 20 self-hating runs I uh, attempted uh, with months in between them. important. I must parenthesise at this point. Everyone says they're not a runner. I've got a friend who ran a hundred kilometer ultra and she said, I'm, I'm not really a runner. I say, I'm not really a runner. Unless you're wearing a singlet and you're a member of a running club, the habit is to say, I'm not a runner. That's what I'm fighting against. Of course okay, you're blooming sure, 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 sure. Well, I have run, but you know, it's yeah, like, yeah, 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 okay, fine. A guy ran past me and winked. And it was the best moment. It, that made me feel like a runner. He ran past me. I didn't know what the facial etiquette is when yeah. you run past people. Since then, someone else has run past me and done devil horns. Like, nice. we are fucking so rock for running. And I try to do that to people now. If I do happen to pass one, uh, often I lose confidence, do it too late, they don't see it. And I'm just going to like, but some guy winking at me like, we're really in the club. Good. That was awesome. And isn't because, it, Probably because I was also a guy, I don't think men should generally wink at women as they no, run No, exactly. It's a difficult one. And if you've always got to respect a runner who doesn't want anything to do with doesn't you. Doesn't want any contact, any facial anything. They don't want anything to do with them. But on the other hand, yeah, I, I saw, I mean, it's just a luxury to be a man in the daytime going, what kind of signal can I give to another man? Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> it's totally <laughs> a position privilege. of privilege. Yeah, of course, <laughs> but, of yeah, but I think on the, at the other end of that, there's a real purity to it because... Um, 
you know, waving and smiling and stuff can be tiring. So that you naturally make it really small. It's such a wonderful little interaction. I've got a memory of a guy I saw on the towpath in Nottingham and he waved, but he just, his wave, I can't even remember. I just remember thinking it was beautiful. He kind of just, he just... He just gave me half his hand. You know, I mean, it was so gentle. Oh, it, you know, it, it really ties in with what I was saying earlier on about getting on stage and trying to impress everyone. It's like just less noise. Just be who you be. And the, uh, try and let people come to you. The equivalent community gesture in van driving uh, is that if you are driving a VW camper van and you see someone else driving a VW camper van on the other opposite side of the road, you wave at one another, uh, and that is to try and engender the spirit in the world that owning a VW camper van is good so that you can sell your VW camper van. <laughs> the, the other equivalent in, uh, I don't have a Mazda Bongo, which works. Are you okay? Um, sorry, do you want to yeah. take a few minutes? Oh, sorry, but misheard you slightly. The Mazda Bongo version is either that you do a little kind of up and down wave to signify the pop top roof when yeah. you see when you do a little kind of up and down wave or you would because they're Japanese cars and the sticks are on the other side the, the opposite way around you would go to flash your lights at someone and accidentally windscreen wipers <laughs> and so now people if you're fast enough you deliberately wet you deliberately wash your windscreen wipers with the jet when you see another Mazda Bongo coming the other way like there's a little in joke about having done it the wrong what way around what do you do if you see a Mazda Bongo driver in the rain One of the things with this podcast is that, I, I say uniquely, but I don't mean uniquely, unusually amongst podcasts done by comedians, it isn't a showcase for me to be funny. As a result, I can't do a really casual tour of it where people come and see it in order to see me hang out and be funny and riff with my comedy mates in a way that makes me grind my teeth to a powder with jealousy when I see loads of other people doing that. I think, oh, it's a shame that the podcast I've been focusing on for 10 years isn't easy and fun to tour as a piece of entertainment. It has, however, because of the type of show that it is, it's got this other thing, which may be better, which is it's kind of assembled a super team of like-minded helpers all over the world when I now have brilliant relationships with really smart people who like the way I ask questions, let's say. The most, the most possible here, like the most humble version of it is they just like the way I ask questions. Mm-hmm. They're interested in the things I'm interested in. Do you have something similar with runners? Do you get runners come to see your, sh- your comedy shows because of the podcast... Do you get, are there other fringe benefits to having a long-running, successful podcast about running when you're a comic? My answer to your question is twofold. (laughs) Um, You know, I think that... um it isn't. It's, it's, it, my answer to your question is epic. I'm always trying to edit myself down before I go. And failing, as you'll have noticed already. Um, first of all, it's... The thing about having a nice podcast, I think it's really difficult if the, if your podcast model is we're going to banter and be funny. Because there's, I mean, I think it's brilliant. People do it really, really well. But I think it's, it's you've got to, sooner or later, you, you need some longevity that's going to look after itself. And what your podcast has is it's a conversation that there's no, there's no end. It's not going to, it's not a conversation that's going to finish. Right, so you oh can God, start. Oh God, is it not? <laughs> oh God, well, unless you realize. kill it. <laughs> <laughs> and this is really interesting for me because you know we we started it. it I, you know, you were saying I'd like to have this conversation. We we like this time we had a good conversation. Said we should have recorded it, but then we did record it. Da da da. But we could, you know, we could walk away and have this conversation, and you could also have it with any of those other people around the world. It is a. There's a there's a dialogue there that will that doesn't necessarily need to be fed. And uh, despite the fact, uh, and my podcast is came later. I didn't know 
from podcasts when uh, when you made one. But um, ep- ep- today, episode three hundred and thirty. Jesus Christ, you've got your skates on. Yeah, so you <laughs> no, know. that's very much not the point. Well, it connects to what we were saying about um, doing doing stuff regularly. Someone said to me, uh, you know, it's good if you do a podcast every week or at some regular period. And that may uh, have been me. Yeah, it could have been you. It wasn't you. Oh, right. But you would have known that. You'd Get gone, rid of that bit, so Nathan. Here's me trying to make it all about me. <laughs> blindingly obvious to say to Deary. People anyway. used to ask me, what, uh, can you give me uh, some advice about podcasting? And I would always say, pick a, pick a regular schedule and stick to it. Yeah, it's great advice, of course. Um, and, uh, and I hadn't considered that, you know, but anyway. But the other thing is me being me. Saying that to me is very similar to saying to Forrest Gump, always keep your eye on the ball. He never doesn't look at the ball after that. That's why he goes to China and plays, uh, plays table tennis. Yeah. But um, uh, So that's why there's 330 episodes of Running Commentary. Because really, we do have a community and we do have guests. But it's a conversation that we'll just keep having forever. But, yeah. the, but it's a different kind of thing. The reason we, we wanted to do it, and this isn't really what you asked, but I think it's important, is because me and Paul found that we, when we went for a run, we softened up philosophically over time and the conversation got more interesting um so it's always supposed to be long and it's quite that it's very challenging from a recording while you're running a long point of view because basically around around an hour the chances of the recording going horribly wrong and the chances of us saying something incredibly wise that should be kept for posterity <laughs> also climb really hard so you know it's quite high stakes but uh it's really interesting because it's very so we just want to chat and flow we're looking for flow we want to go somewhere interesting just by running and chat chatting whilst running and just seeing where it takes the mm. brain in the dialogue and the fun thing about that from a comedian point of view is sometimes that's really silly and we're funny and sometimes it's really wise and we surprise ourselves with our uh, philosophizing and um, i think we're both naturally have no don't apply any different weight to different tones of conversation so we slip very easily without trying from talking about very serious and sometimes sad things Mm. to not just being light and talking comedy but literally talking rubbish you know just like banter crazy talk voices this kind of stuff anyway so that's the model and that's why we did it and i realize retrospectively over time that it's such a luxury to be comedians and to be able to do that you know because it's helped me access the philosophical side, the meditative part of running, more than I think a lot of people get the chance to, really, because you've got to get your run in. And if you add to that, that pressure we were talking about to run and run hard and be da-da-da, it can be very hard to forget that there's, there's more to running than exercise. And in terms of how it affects audiences... At first, I mean, I was always excited about running, always trying to do jokes about it, and just no one in a room full of people would admit to being a runner. At first, I just accepted that, but I don't anymore. I mean, no, I suppose I do, I just don't ask. But, you know, if I'm standing in front of 150 people and I say, anyone here a runner, no one will answer, and there'll be some runners. Um, Or at least that used to be the case. And I don't think, I think people are still probably, because people would say, I'm not really a runner even though they are one, right? Okay. Like we were saying. And, uh, but now people come along and they come to the show and they'll come up afterwards and they'll say, you know, like what you're doing. But what's nice about that is it's a contingent. 
Yeah. You know, it's never going to be the whole audience. It's more like someone. And it's, all, and it's always a lovely surprise to me because not only have I been a comedian for a long time, I've been a running comedian without audiences connecting to that. I mean, you know, for years and years and years. So I still just surprised every time when people come over and talk to me and say, I know you, I know your work. And then this is the beautiful thing. This is the the crux of what we're talking about, that absolute luxury of coming off stage from my, these are the things I say to, if, to these people here, which of course I'm mature now. I try not to be anything other than myself. I'm trying to be a good person, trying to be honest when I'm on stage, but it's still, it's a set. You know, we're talking 20, 25 minutes of me trying to be funny. And I come on stage and come downstairs and talk to some people who I've never met before, but who know who I am because they've listened to me talk for 100 hours and possibly read a book where I talk about my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, doesn't it just make you want to cry? Those people <laughs> actually know who I am. And they still like me. <laughs> Sally Field. They like me. You really like me. Does that, is that meaningful to you? Is that important to you, the idea that they like you? That, no, that aspect? No, of it? I think probably uh, um, that's me dissing myself and spoiling it at the end. But yeah, I mean, in a sense that they're not, that they're not, that they still like me. It's not that I want them to like me, it's that the actual me hasn't put them off that process. <laughs> Does that feel very honest? That's, no, I think that's. Is that a joke answer? I mean, what's the. What no, is, how much do answer. you need to I be like? How much these days do you need to be like? No, that's it. Friend? I know exactly what you're saying. And I, and, I, and I feel the pressure and I agree. And I think it's exactly that. It's like that old thing where people say, when you're desperate to go out with someone, you've got to, you've got to not want it. You've got to go and do something else. And then you'll meet someone. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, well, that's easy for you to say. We said it's going to happen now. <laughs> but, um, uh, um, but that's it. It's, it's combo- the, 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 point I find myself at in my life I get that there was a neediness in my performing existence to now and uh, probably in lockdown I felt ah don't bother (laughs) and I've come back to comedy gigs doing them you know for pleasure and for money (laughs) and uh, I like audiences and I want to meet them and I like them but I don't need their approval I I need it from a technical point of view because we'll all have more fun but I know that it doesn't it's not going to change my life and And that has made it possible for me to enjoy uh, being liked in an open and honest way by people I haven't desperately asked to like me that's a brilliant answer I like that a lot well, it's what you said, except... <laughs> is it? Is it, Rob? <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about some of the parallels with uh, running and comedy. You talk in the book about the early runs where you're thinking, oh my God, imagine if I could ever do a marathon. Yeah. About what would that be like? Being similar to the moment when you're an open mic comic watching someone doing an hour, going, what would that be like? And the answer is, in both cases, easier. Easier. It would be easier. Absolutely. Talk to me it about would be that. Easier. I think yeah. that's no, this is really this is really true. And but of course, it's so easy to say, and you can only know it from living it. But you know what I mean. It, 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 I can say it. Uh, you still, you're st- even if you recognise it when it, I would say you. I mean, one. Even if one recognises it from me saying it, when you, when one discovers it for oneself, you still got to get there. But basically, yeah. When I was doing uh, gig two, I don't know, say. 
15 people above a pub somewhere or downstairs from a pub and a contingent, you know, four or five of those people are the other acts. And that was my day-to-day gigging open spot existence. You do those gigs and they'd be all right. You see how you do. And then, yeah, you go to a club, maybe doing an open spot in a big club and someone's going to close, right, and do do 40 minutes in front of a room full of people. And, yeah, it just that just looks like pressure, doesn't it? It looks like it'd be a nightmare. And it's so much easier. It's so much easier. I mean, obviously, you have to be there. You've got to have the chops. You can't just say, oh, I'll do that then. You've got to work yourself to that point. You've got to be comfortable on stage. You've got to know what you've got to say. You've got to know why you're there, who those people are, all these basic, you know, it's a toolkit that you've got to get for yourself. But it is easier because when you're in that room with 15 people above a pub, then there's doubt in the room. The people are there to, uh, they're like, I hope I can help. Uh, and thinking, I hope I can help. There's no way that's not a good comedy audience member. Mm-hmm. You have to be, to be a good comedy audience member is to be passive. It's just let it happen to you. And then if it goes well, you forget yourself. You're just in the set. You're in complicity with the act and laughing all the time. We know how that feels. You know what I mean? You, you laugh all the time. You just get inside the comedian that's sharing their set with you and you're laughing and you forget who you are. Whereas the people by the pub, they never forget who they are. They're thinking, well done you. Your jokes are working quite well. I support you. I see what you were trying to do. They're not, they're, they're all up in their, the audiences are all up in their head. You know, and if there's any doubt in the gig, if, if someone really bad is on or someone has a bad time, then it makes it harder. People are less convinced this thing is going to be good. You know, and I'm not, that's fair enough. That act should do that. They should get out there, try it, workshop their stuff, da, da, da. But yeah, back at that gig, headline set in, I don't know, the gig I've got in my head is uh, I saw someone closing uh, um, Birmingham Glee Club, you know, when I was doing five-minute spots. And it's like, <gasps> and then later on did it myself. And it's like, well, what you've got here is a room which is set up, talk about permission to laugh, you know, you've got hundreds of people here all facing in the right direction towards a well um, uh, uh, sound rigged uh, well lit stage with someone on it they're totally expecting to be funny, having watched other people be funny, all you've got to do is not mess it up <laughs> it's, it's such an easier discipline, do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so and a comparison with running is that when you go out and run you know, you work up, do your catch to 5K and get up to 5K. You're running to the absolute limit of your ability all the time. You're running into the red. You're getting wheezy. You're stopping. You're walking through. You're going to run a bit more. You're going to feel it. There's going to be various parts of, you know, I remember getting a terrifying throbbing in the back of my head when I uh, um, first did a, a not particularly long run. And um, and that's before you even get to the psychology of it. You're fighting it all the way. Do I want to do this? What am I doing running? I'm not a runner. You know, um, why did I make this choice? Uh, I'm wheezing. Is it bad? Am I doing it wrong? So much doubt and physical difficulty. Whereas, yeah, when you run a marathon, it's really hard because it's far. <laughs> don't know if anyone ever told you. <laughs> um, but, you know, the when you set off, in a marathon, when you run over, I don't know, uh, Tower Bridge or whatever, you know, if you've done the training, then it's not, it's starting just that, can I do this? Is this me? Am I allowed to do this? The people looking at you thinking, are you allowed to do that? You know, doubts will always make things more difficult. Plus, with running in particular, it's really hard to start. It's like a metaphor. It's within itself of the whole thing because your body thinks, what, we're not running for a bus? This isn't the sprint? This isn't, mm-hmm. this isn't flight? 
So it will give you everything you want. It will say, yeah, take all the running, take all the energy. And then you run. And then after two minutes, it's like, stop now. Oh, stop now. What were you thinking? So, and I, th- I honestly, in my head, I believe that even the top athletes around the world, they all have that. They all have, a, they probably don't notice it, but their body will do a signal two, five, ten minutes into the run that says, so we're not stopping? And that's the bit that a new runner has to get through okay. to get to the bit where the the sweet spot where you run for a bit longer between the bit where your body accepts that you're still running and you kind of run out of fuel, which if you run a long way, it could be, which could be sort of like between an half an hour and an hour of running but it can also happen in the, like a 20 minute run it's a, you're looking for the sweet spot and I think it's the same as doing a full set of having a stage all to yourself yes you know? okay I was wondering what is that what is that moment is there a sweet spot in comedy is there a certain moment X minutes into a gig where you go I've got them now yeah. or is that, is that I don't a, think is no, I don't think it's X minutes but I think it's minutes and it's, it's whether it's whether the stage is when the stage is completely yours right and I think sometimes people will find that doing two minutes let alone five but it is certainly as you do if you're trying to do longer and longer sets there will come a moment when you think ah i think for me it was between <coughs> 10 and 20 minutes you think oh, i've working out five minutes i've got five minutes i've got seven minutes i've got a bit more i've got 10 minutes at 10 minutes is really good and then you go to do 10 to 15 or 20 minutes and you're just like well i'm what i'm doing now is my 10 minutes set slower taking the time <laughs> taking the, you know what I mean it stops being about the jokes and you start to realise because it's like any amount of time spent doing something we're incredibly adaptable that's what we do now so if you spend time running if you spend time on stage your body will go oh okay this is what we do now you know like terrible things if you have to do something I don't know I don't want to think of a you think of a terrible thing <laughs> and if you have to do that you know like I don't know say you're in uh, in uh, icy icy cold water and you're treading water and you're waiting for someone to get you out of the water I mean obviously you're in you're in trouble there but there'll be a bit where you think well this is what we do now this is this is how humans work we're incredibly adaptable when when and only when we have to be when we last spoke you were talking about being a post comedian can you explain mm-hmm. what you meant by that? Let's just reprise a little bit of that conversation. Yes, and I must give some credit here because it, it initially came from a conversation I had with Tom Price, who is uh, um, someone I, a friend of mine I always talk about comedy with and uh, uh, sometime comedian, actor. I mean, I think he's done quite a lot of comedy, but he also... He's because, done loads, yeah. But, but as a DJ, often not done it for long periods of time. Which as gives a DJ. him. A, oh, as a row, like a D, like a yeah, 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 yeah like so a he, like a radio host type DJ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like what? No, he, he spent time as a tuxedo. <laughs> Did you think he went? <laughs> I, <laughs> um, but yeah, I just mean I think he tapped into this rhythm that took me longer to get to earlier on because he because he you know he's an actor and uh, um, radio host. <laughs> And that sometimes I just thought you meant he was a DJ, like a spinning the like a jiggy jig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah, that doesn't help. Um, we were talking about it, and we were talking about, and I was sort of panicking about it really because my bread and butter um, pre um, uh, lockdown, I thought was the live circuit. Although to be fair, I was kind of moving towards it, not just being gigs. It's just a desperate fear really of that of the curve of that you know you try and and become think of jokes 
try and get a few little open spots, get some proper gigs, get gigs, get employed by people you want to get employed by, get in at the gigs you really want to be playing. It's that's you see the graph going up there. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You're looking for so, and it starts with yes, 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 more, more, more. Give me the gigs, give me the gigs. And like I remember thinking to myself, never say no to a gig. And then later on, I started. I felt the luxury of going. I'm going to say no to that gig, but uh, um, you know the basic principle is there. Say yes, say yes to this job opportunity, and it will give back to you. That's how it works. Um, but actually, as you get older and Never mind what's going on in the world. Comedy is a jumping off point to other things. I mean, obviously, this is for people if you like do um, gigs, do gigs and gigs, and then someone gives you a uh, chat show on telly, then you're going to spend your time doing that. But it works that way for everyone. You know, I, I by the time I was starting to panic about this. I had a long running podcast and uh, and I was thinking hard about a book and I sort of failed to even notice that I've got some sort of fairly regular radio gigs because I didn't know because they didn't come about in this kind of trying to put the comedian forward way it's more to do they're just other things in my slate and um and I was chatting away about this to to Tom and we were talking about doing different things and how and the thing is that on the one hand getting used to the idea that stand-up is only part of it and that your one stand-up uh performance life can exist healthily without being your whole life. Um, and also, the key thing about being a post-comedian, and post-comedian is, is, the important thing is that you're not saying, I'm not a comedian anymore, or I'm not going to be a comedian anymore. It's like you have been a comedian, and you still are, but you're post-comedian. And that means that you do other stuff as well, properly, professionally. I properly have done it again. But I mean, as your job, not yeah. just for a laugh. And... Uh, as a post-comedian, you will find that being a comedian will help you with those jobs. Yeah. I mean, it seems so obvious that when I say it out loud, I feel like a fool. But we were talking about how rhythms that we know from the stage help us in broadcasting. Mm-hmm. Just as one example, you know, I mean, it's, you think instinctively, as a, when you're on stage, you want to kind of keep the ball in the air, as it were. And that's helpful in other less um, pressure. Once you learn that habit... You're unlikely to leave dead time when you're hosting a radio program. Yeah. Just naturally, you're not going to do it. You're going to keep the thing moving forward. You're going to, you know, which is very natural. And of course, you can attain that skill without stand up, but it helps. Uh, and then situations where you don't have to be funny all the time, you still know how to be funny. You know how to construct a, you know, I can put some, I can put a joke in my book. <laughs> again other people can do that but there are rhythms <laughs> and shapes to the things that help yeah. you know so so that's the actually there's two very simple ingredients to be in a post comedian which i'm going to say in less words and one is your job has more stand up more than stand up in it and less stand up mm-hmm. and two you recognize that you can use your skills from stand up without doing a stand up gig does it cost you something or is it is there a hurdle involved in letting go of the idea of yourself as purely a comedian in order to think of yourself as a post comedian or does that does it does it 
does the second one help the first when you realise you're not gigging as much as you were? And the reason I asked, just to context from our chat previously, is my kind of ongoing don't call it a crisis with the idea of who I am and what I do now. Mm. Now that my children are... <laughs> it's not that they weren't already fun, but now they're really articulate and all I want to do is be with them and holding them and talking to them constantly all the time. Yeah. And so the idea of all of those things... Um, Josh Whittacombe was saying this to me recently that you're, all of those things that make stand-up brilliant in your 20s and 30s are the same things that make it a huge pain in the arse in your 40s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the travel, the boozy environments, the late nights, all of those things. Well, that was the whole... That was a good part of the goal. That was certainly yeah, yeah, the fringe yeah. benefits were super fun. Um, so I'm coming to it now with a sort of sense that, well, I don't do as much live stand-up as I once did. I say that now, the diary's filling up for the rest of the year. But there was a good... Obviously, COVID times and then the wake of COVID... Where, where I was finding that, like, God, what the hell am I? Yeah. I don't want to go out on a Tuesday night miles from my house to do 20 minutes of stage time. That feels really selfish now to go yeah. and do that when I could be at home having a, an ongoing, brilliant relationship with my family. So as I started to wrestle with that, I had to confront the fact that if I don't, if I don't do that anymore, what am I? And that idea of what am I contains... Uh, Am I not a comedian then if I'm not going as hard as I used to? And if I'm not a comedian in that same way anymore, what does that mean for me, the self that has kind of embraced the idea of comedy and embraced the idea of being a comedian uh, in, rather than have a personality? <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like build a whole yeah, personality. Yeah, exactly. That you ridicule, but that's true. It isn't, it isn't a personality, is it? It's, that's connecting to my... It's my journey too. But also what, you're, what we're talking about is... It's just growing up, isn't it? I mean, you can panic about it or not, and it might stress you out for ages or you might get past it, but it is just, it's going to happen. You know, and, and yeah, sometimes it seems preposterous and then a few things change and you think, oh, that's not preposterous anymore. It's just important to recognise it. You know, that it's not, what does Walt Whitman say? I contain multitudes, you know, and, and you know, the family thing is, fast, is fantastic, you know, because it will totally show you that. I mean, the, the best thing for your act as a as someone who's been doing comedy for a while and likes it and is engaged and feeling really good about it is is having children because it gives you that exactly the right kind of not caring it means it's like jazz you know what i mean you you want to be there you want to do the gig um you know what the jokes are going to be you like the audience but it's not the most important thing in your life you've got children and that just gives you that distance that means you want it rather than need it. And that's going to make you a better act. But then that becomes practical and you end up not wanting to go to the gig at all. Well, the bully, the bully in my head, were I to make that case, would say to me, yes, but that's what people say when they're dealing with the fact that they're not so successful at comedy. Well, it's comedy. You know, afford to have It's definitely not good or bad. You know, it's, well, the enemy of art is the is the is the cram in the hallway someone mm-hmm. said and, yeah. and you know it's true I, I you know I, I if I want to I could say oh that huge moment when I would break through into mega stardom you know maybe I fumbled that because there was things going on in my life it's like you get mad thinking about these things life is life it keeps moving forward and you've got to live it at each given point you're at you know I, when I started doing uh, running commentary uh, uh, run compod available on all podcast <laughs> with Paul Tonkinson you know the interesting thing about that is it, it must be like that this for you 
that sense of a lens, something you see just to give you a little bit of distance on your own life. He's saying, I don't want to go to the Edinburgh Festival because that's a summer, I can spend that summer with my kids. And they're at school all the time. I don't see them much. And I want to spend time with them in August. I'm like, hmm, not go to the Edinburgh Festival. Yeah. What the hell is he talking about? You know, cut to three years later. And I'd like that. That's it. Your kids get older. They go to school. You miss them. You want to spend quality time with them. Going to the Edinburgh Festival for three and a half weeks doesn't square with that. Before we even talk about the finances of those two scenarios. Yeah. And, uh, and the, all this makes sense. The thing, the key thing in that is, you know, individual choices, blah, blah, blah. There's always a way to go. There's always a way to not go. The most important thing is just to break the, any hegemony of thought that this has to be the way this has to be. You know, like you were saying earlier on about types, ways of doing comedy. You can be a funny, successful comedian and not go to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. It can be done. You know, I, you know, one might not know how to do it. He, that, that might be the way. For me, that was it. That was completely the journey. But mm. then the journey carries on. You know, there is no finish line. And one day you think, oh, so was that. That might be the last solo hour I do, I, I do in Edinburgh. It might not be, but it might be. Who knows? You know, things just shift and change. And that's maybe that you know. the fact of doing an hour every year, as I've done lots, uh, is that's a structure that I'm clinging to because it benefits me to cling to it. Yeah, you know exactly. I mean, like it, it, it's not the only way to do it. It's just that the world is quite scary. And yeah, so I it's find the world quite scary. handcuffs. You know, you 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 can escape from the handcuffs when it's funny. You can not. Do I don't it. remember that. You can oh, escape from when it's, it's funny. It's a really good rule of, of of comedy, which because it's good to have rules, but you can always break them. Okay. So Roger Rabbit is handcuffed to Bob Hoskins' bed. Okay. And uh, they're trying to work a way of getting out, and then various things happen, and then he just takes his hand out and wipes wipes his brow and puts it back in the handcuffs, and he says, like, "Why didn't you do that before?" And he says, "It wasn't funny before." <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. I do remember that moment, but I love that. I mean, it's absolutely, it's at what, why and when you can bend rules, you know, in, oh. in, in everything. That's it. You know, you could, you know, Roger, Roger Rabbit's handcuffs. If, if, if it's funny for you to not go to, or for one to not go yeah. and do a new hour in Edinburgh, yeah. And also funny as a metaphor now. Yeah, of know. course. Yeah. <laughs> then, you know, it's... The great link, the link with that one is uh, coming at it from a different direction is uh, Saga by Brian K. Vaughan. Brilliant uh, comic books. I don't know if you've read them. No. But in it, the I've mentioned this before on the show, in it there is a race of people who practice magic, but the cost of magic, it like it all has a cost. So there's a moment when some people are on a space ship and it's being attacked and in order to teleport them off the ship you have to tell a secret so there's a moment where someone has to turn to their partner and say I've been having an affair for the last two years and they didn't want to give that secret away but they had to to make the magic work that would teleport them to safety that's a great idea that's a great metaphor for how magic yeah and it ties with what you were saying about you know it doesn't mean like having children can't slow you down creatively and stuff it's just it's what does things cost the weight of different things there are no wrong or right answers you've got to keep moving forward and be good to yourself and be good to other people it's these are these are the only answers you know there's no there's no ultimate framework no structure no oh i get it now you know there is you can get that about little individual things but then you can turn then you can turn around and say i've changed my mind about it now you know it's um things can be really good until they're not. And it's okay. You've got to be ready to accept that change. We, we started talking today about accepting change. And it's a bit like one of my a performance rule from those early days in theatre is don't sulk. 
And I think don't sulk is a fantastic rule um, because I think it's really useful in life and in performance. But the reason it's a fantastic rule is you don't need it until you test it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like human rights law. There's no need for human rights law if you don't need to protect the rights of terrible people. Or, you know, that's a crass example. But you know what I mean? We need uh, prisoners need to be treated like humans. That's what that's what human rights law is for. And don't sulk law is for the time when you're doing a gig and something unfair happens. You know, a heckler, you're having a great time and a heckler heckles and they get a big laugh at your expense. And the audience don't agree with you that the heckler was totally at fault. That is when, as a performer, you don't sulk. <laughs> that's when. That's when it counts. Because you're not allowed to. You're not allowed to sulk. Because it won't help. It won't help you move forward. What do you want? Last question. What do you understand and want from the idea of legacy in comedy? Like, is it important to you? Some, there was a question. There was a listener question from someone called Tumas, which looked very much like... Uh, I think I know who this person is, and I think it's a made-up name they use on Facebook, so I shan't guess at it. Let's call them Tumas. Um, it's a crime such a talented comedy musician hasn't released an album yet. No, I don't think it... Well, that's interesting. That's a, those are two it's different... Crime, it's a crime, Rob. <laughs> well, but, but Why this, have you committed this crime? I, uh, I would refer you, one, to my earlier, earlier answer, which is that I don't really do songs. I've got hardly any songs. Um, uh, particularly uh, there's the coffee song you could play that over and over again for 10 tracks if you listen to the coffee song it, uh, you know look at me doing this coffee song live and live look how much of it is me stopping and talking about it yeah right okay yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so either you get that and I'm talking to myself in a room or I mean, a, I mean I'd love to do I would love to, I would love to do two things I would love a comedy vinyl album you know, like old school 70s style with, and then you could have it listed track listed like songs mm-hmm. Like uh, like an album by Led Zeppelin, but also like an album by someone who released it, like Steve Martin. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it would be it would have to be a gig, and there'd be loads of talking on it because that's how I work. The 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 songs are woven around the stand up stand up first song. Can you do that with loads of talking on it? Yeah, but where's the demo- you know in terms of like what you said about legacy? Yes, I could do that for kind of onanistic purposes, but there's no one hammering down the door saying, where's that deer in vinyl? And I am at peace with that concept. <laughs> and, uh, and equally, as a human, I would be just as keen, and this is the big confession, and something I've genuinely been thinking of doing, would be to make an album of songs. I mean, how... Just saying it now, it just sounds so non-funny ridiculous. non-funny songs. Yeah, but yeah. Um, again, there's no audience for that either, and I don't even want one. But I, I was a songwriter first. I've got songs I wrote decades ago which I love and no one's ever heard which aren't funny in the slightest and I'd be at least as keen to record those but I've got a feeling that that's not the album Tumas was talking about I would love to hear one of those songs can anyone hear those songs are they not recorded or they're not secret I just uh, they're just I mean uh, there's a third element to this which is I am not necessarily negatively Luddite. I really uh, um, not technical. I, uh, it's amazing how 
being a musician leads you into this situation where you have to know how to do technical things and I think I've got a really good relationship with that in the end because I only learn what I need to learn and I do that well and simply and it's all very live you know like I've experimented with very elaborate loopers and really clever mm. things and I stick with my good live one I never take anything pre-recorded on stage I've got very there's loads of limitations to my rig and I use the limitations to make the comedy good rather than going, oh, I won't be able to do that. Mm. So there's a real Luddite, um, live, nuts and bolts aspect to what I do, which means I, the recording it is not easy or interesting to me. So there's loads of music I've created in my life, funny and not funny, which will just go the way of all things. And I think maybe ultimately that's the lesson. I mean, in my, I am I'm 50 later this year, which is a great, you know, every age you are, people's talking about that you know it's like be, it doesn't matter it means nothing it's number right but i'm trying to put things i've wanted to do my whole life to bed it's like if you don't do it now then stop wanting to do it stop thinking when are you going to do that and one of those is to make an album mr Gen is to make a non-comedy album which i'm so embarrassed to admit this here but i'm being honest it would be it would be for people who wanted to hear it it's not, i'm not trying to start my recording career as distinct from being a comedian but i wouldn't be ashamed of the songs it's a proper thing and uh yeah it's a question of either do it or don't do it and then maybe that's the conclusion i'm drawing about it talking to you now is get over it sing the songs don't sing the songs let them go, you know. I don't need them, you know. I don't need my big statue of Ozymandias in the desert, thanks very much. I don't need anyone to look upon my works and despair. But that's the question. You don't... So why don't you need that? And is that... Uh, some people do need that. Some people want the idea of legacy and some people want the idea of leaving a thing behind and making a mark. I, yeah. I, I think I used to, but I think I've let go of it and... Uh, I sort of don't understand it. I'm like, well, even no matter how long, like what your thing lasts past your death, there's no difference to me between a thing lasting 10 years past your death and a thing lasting 10,000 years past your death. They're both pointless. They're both pointless. It's not the way to do it. You know, it's the, the fasten your seatbelts. The future is now. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's just a bad way to think about things. If we, Surely we should all be trying in some way to live in the moment. And of course, there is a future and there is a past. We have responsibilities and stuff are going on. But the time to be doing creating great things to be enjoying the world and stuff is today it's now you know i'm going to do it later have someone talk about how good i was later i mean i'd love the idea of someone listening to me doing my set and enjoying it but it wouldn't really mean anything unless they could then message me and say i really enjoyed it (laughs) then it's fun then we're interacting and we're in the present again you know it doesn't i don't know i i think there's a, a different aspect to this i mean it just sounds like that's a fundamental thing about getting older and accepting that, that things are going to keep changing and time's going to keep passing and that you've got the, the moment you get used to something, it's going to be different. You know, that, that it's the magic of life. It's, it's a lesson that, that parenting throws into sharp relief. It's certainly a lesson that, that doing any job for 20 years will teach you. Um, but I think also as a creative, you know, I've never had, I've never had um, abstract artistic leanings i thought i did i thought i might write songs or or write plays that i want people to to watch just plunk pluck them out of the air but when i did that i was just trying to come up with things that people might want to see 
It's just stuff to do. Like right, right back to the clown, you know, that it's all just stuff to be doing. The important thing is complicity. It's about, is about, I, I say I, I'm the artist, like any artist. You create something that people will respond to and they respond. And that bit while they're creating it and you're responding it, that bit where you meet, that's the important bit, the complicity. Yeah, the relationship. So it's true. You can have a legacy. I can stand in uh, uh, um, the National Gallery and look at, um, what's his name? John Singer Sargent's painting of the little girl with the evening lamplight. And you can see a postcard of it and it doesn't look like that. And when you're in front of it, it kind of glows and you think, oh, there we are. That's a fantastic painting. And that's complicity between me and that painter. So if that's that painter. But um, so that works, you know, that's how art works. But I would never think I was going to paint a picture of a little girl. I'd always just be trying to come up with something to fill that space between me and the audience, which I, I think as a grown up, I've learned to realize that that's OK. That doesn't mean I'm not not a proper runner not a proper artist uh you know it's just about different reasons why we create so i don't i did a song i did a show in edinburgh which was all songs it was deliberately trying to lean into what i was becoming and let it happen and let people see that so instead of just looping my guitar doing some jokes and songs along the way i looped loads of live instruments and worked out how to play them all so I could be a band all on my own. And then did, wrote comedy about that, about how it was called The One. And it's about the first beat on the bar being the looping note. I'm the one person in this band. It's how one is one person and then there gets a family. You know, I just I wrote a show about it and played all the songs on all the instruments. And then people came along and there was just sometimes this energy of like, oh, that was interesting. Thanks. I'm glad you shared that with us. And I'm like, shared it with you? I wrote it for you. I don't care. It was just something to say. <laughs> so, you know, sharing it with you is the... I'm not sharing. Complicity isn't... You know what I mean? I'm, I'm not creating stuff in my house that I hope someone sees. There's nothing in my house. If I create it in my house, it's because I go, oh, I might as well, especially might as well rehearse so I can get to the gig. The gig is the thing. Or, but not just the gig, the book, whatever. Where we meet, that's where it happens. Thanks, Ben. So that was Rob. That was Rob. Episode one and episode 400. Um, I think the shortest ever gap was Nigel Ung, who had a, a gap of something like six months in between coming on the show and then coming back on the show to talk about having gone bewilderingly viral in the meantime. But that's the longest one. It must be the longest one. Um, ten years. Every ten years. Shall we start again from zero? Shall we start again? Shall we get, shall we get Dan Evans on for episode 401? Um, I'd love to get Dan Evans back, but episode 401, I'm happy to report, will be with Dulce Sloan, and it's an absolute belter, recorded live at South by Southwest, so that's coming out next week. The one after that will be Daniel Rigby, um, brilliant uh, actor, comic, uh, returning to stand-up, you heard it here first, and um, and also uh, the wonderful, wonderful author and performer of the audiobook uh, Isaac Steele and the Forever Man, which is available on Audible. And if ever something was worth getting the free trial membership in order to download, it's 13 or 14 hours. Just absolute magic. If you're a Douglas Adams fan, then there's a huge amount to enjoy there. And uh, and it's really, really good. So those are the next two. And then after that, there might be a little break. I might have seasons, but what I might do is I might do a season where I do 402 episodes and then, and then have a bit of time off. And then season two will be episodes 403 to 805. 
Yeah, maybe we'll do that. It should be 804, shouldn't it? Can't even count. So thank you to Rob. Thank you. Let's do the traditional stuff. Thank you to Nathan Wood for editing, uploading and producing the show. Um, Let's say thank you to Jake Crossland for the logging. Thank you to Peter Dobbing, who I enjoy calling the podcast consultant in passing. I never really explain what that is. If you're a more recent listener, you won't know. But Pete is a dear, dear friend of mine um, and has been instrumental in the development, the creation and the development of the best comedy podcast, the best comedy venue and the best comedy festival. He's one of those kind of key behind the, the scenes figures. And um, and he had a lot to do and and continues to have a lot to do. We, we used to get together in London uh, when we had fewer dependents and uh, have leisurely coffees and call it kind of blue sky thinking time. And he's an enormous part of what makes this podcast what it is. So we all owe him a debt of gratitude. Um, if he'd fucking start listening to it again, that would be nice too. <laughs> um, but uh, so that's Pete Dobbing. And I have of late, you will have noticed uh, over the last five or six episodes, uh, also been exp- exploring the fact that this podcast uh, is dedicated to uh, comedian and actor and superstar and Sesame Street uh, guest Brett Goldstein. And I'm going to stop doing that now because it started to feel like bullying. But Brett listens to every one of these episodes. I know there are a few. What I find is there are comics out there um, like Brett who listen to the show, sometimes quite religiously, um, and then refuse to come on the show. And if you remember, I had to sort of not not exactly trick, but uh, I had to get Brett on by other means. Uh, we did a non-com pod and then obviously it turned into a con-com pod and that wasn't deliberate. Um, but there are people out there, and you know who you are if you're one of them listening to this, um, that you are so welcome, and I promise I'll go easy on you, <laughs> and uh, and you should believe in yourself because you're brilliant, and if I've asked, then you should come on. So if you're one of them, please uh, please do. Um, but uh, I'm going to stop. I, th- I think I should probably stop mentioning Brett every time because it tickles me to think, because I know he listens to every episode. It tickles me to try and come up with something new to say about him, but I don't want it to feel like bullying. So apologies to you, Brett Goldstein. Um, now, uh, there's, this is, we're going to, I'll move swiftly into a postamble and reflect at length, at probably not at that much length, um, on some thoughts about you. I feel that there's lots of other people I should thank as well. Um, Hannah Chambers is one of them and everybody at Chambers Management, they look after me and it's very nice to be looked after. Um, but, uh, uh, so thank you to everyone there. This is, I mean, you know, I'm not, it's not finishing. <laughs> you remember a few months ago, I was like, should I pack it in? I'm not going to pack it in, but I am going to have a little break because I've got a lot on and I'm going to go to Edinburgh and what have you. And uh, and I've got a bunch of work in progress shows coming up. And I, the more time I spend on this, you're, you're not going to believe this. The more time you spend doing something, the less time you have available to do other things. Um. So uh, I am keeping going. So don't think that me thanking people means that this is a wrap up. Um, so thanks to everyone at Chambers. who I should thank my wife. She's amazing and she's incredible. And the podcast would not exist without her because after I recorded the very... I very nearly didn't record the first one with Rob, um, with uh, lovely uh, Tom Wateracre and Sarah Dean at Top Secret. Thank you, Mark Rothman, for the uh, opportunity to record that first one there. Um and uh, I very nearly didn't record it. And then when we had recorded it, I very nearly didn't put it out. And my wife made me do it. So thanks to you, mate. Um, <laughs> I was going to call you. I was going to call you by a pet name. Then my uh, I can't answer. I was going to call you by a pet name then as well. But I won't. So thank you, friendo. <laughs> That'll have to do. Um, and uh, And then you see, in my life, I like to treat any 
moment of merit or significance as an opportunity to mess things up. So already I'm thinking to myself, oh God, who am I going to forget to thank? Can you imagine winning an Oscar? And uh, this, I'm not going to veer into topical comedy here. Um, but uh, can you imagine getting something massive and important and having to do a speech? I would be crippled with anxiety that I would forget to thank key people. Um, I was just chatting to Amanda Donnett. Thanks to Amanda Donnett for uh, uh, being brilliant. She is the psychotherapist. I never know whether to call her a psychologist or a psychotherapist. She's probably both and neither. Um, but um, I get to meet her next week. That's very exciting. Uh, she uh, is. Uh, she joins me for the self-help for comedians uh, special, um, which is available if you're on the Insiders feed. And she's she has a brilliant mind. And uh, we had a meeting online earlier on, and I was explaining to her. Oh, it's the, you know she was sort of celebrating the the. Oh, while I'm at it, wake up, Charlotte. Um, but uh, yes, Amanda and I were discussing the way I operate. She's very good. It's like having a mate who's a therapist who isn't your therapist, but also knows enough about therapy to go, maybe you should just not worry about that so much. And I do, she keeps catching me setting myself homework, which I really appreciate because there's nothing I hate more than homework. And I keep creating homework for myself so that I can struggle with it. And similarly, in conversation with Amanda, I recognised that, oh, yes, so many... Th like, with this, with the big celebration, already I was apprehending the big kind of, hey, it's um, it's 400 episodes and 10 years, I should do something big. But I was apprehending that in the sense of, oh, Christ, I haven't organised anything big enough to do. And I haven't... I don't... I didn't have anyone breathing down my neck saying, you should sort some socials art out, and you should sort this out, and you should sort the other out. So really, I thought, well, I could always fall back on my old friend exposing the fact that I haven't done the thing properly as the thing. <laughs> um, and maybe that, maybe that is appropriate to you. Who knows? Um, I, I will try to be better uh, in future, dear listener, because I don't really want to spend the next 40 plus years of my life stressing and freaking out that I haven't done enough and setting myself homework I can't do and, and all the rest of it. I think that this podcast is very special. And I think it's very special to me and I hope it's special to you. Maybe you're a, a, a filthy casual, in which case you're super welcome as well. Um, but people have sent me and continue to send me such nice sentiments and ideas about this podcast and how it's helped them. And I'm always uh, humbled, which is hard to believe if you know me. But I am. I think I really am. I find it sort of... Con I suppose I'm over the bewildered feeling. I think I was excited for the first three years and then the last seven I've just been bewildered that anyone cares. I think I'm over the bewildered thing. I get it. I get why you like this. I know what's good about it and I think I know what's good about my bit of it. I've always, as we know, been very, I suppose, self-deprecating about it and said, oh, look, my job is to just be invisible. But I do recognise that sometimes I can get a good question out. Um, and... I'm so, so, and I've said this before, but I'll say it once more with feeling, I'm so grateful to you, because without you, I mean, it already is a man sitting alone in his basement talking to himself, but without you, there'd really be no end point to that. Um, so the the profound effect, another slurp from the special mug, the the profound, I'm sorry if you have misophonia, it was awful, um, the profound effect that this podcast and your patronage of it has had on my life just it's it's just enormous and it's the, the thing is not simply oh okay 
I'll, t- I'll try and remember it all in order. See, if I had a producer, they'd put this in a bullet list for me and go, hey, these are the thoughts you're about to think when you get to them. Uh, Finn Taylor, brilliant Finn Taylor, came and did chops for us the other week. And it's such a pleasure to watch him work. It's fantastic to see him and to chat. And we were talking beforehand about Edinburgh and his... Well, we had a conversation about how... Um, Edinburgh, you know, arguably doesn't matter anymore. Perhaps it never did. You know, there's a certain industrial function that it has fulfilled in the past and prizes and awards and all sorts, useful to get known and blah, 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 blah. The function it always fulfilled for me was just unpeeling my mind and inspiring me and getting me all excited about the world and making me realise that another world is possible from, you know, when you're a, a slightly testy, bored 16-year-old from Levington Spa um, going, oh, wow, there is, <laughs> you know, that thing, um, the kind of the Alan Moore idea of the blazing world. There is a secret world behind everything. And uh, it's just that it's kind of performance and, and camaraderie and community and innovation and excitement and creativity and all those things. So, so wonderful. So it ha- had that effect for me my whole life. And Finn was saying, where's the effect that... Um, the industrial use of Edinburgh is kind of over because fandom is now siloed and you don't get famous from Edinburgh and there is no such thing as famous anymore, really. It's just that everyone has, you know, Act X has got 100,000 people over here and Act Y has got, you know, 3,000 people over here and and they're but they're all and so there's overlap in between them, but it's all, you know, I think I'm just explaining the word siloed as I understood it without looking it up. But um, Finn was talking about the way that people, the way that comics operate now, whereby you you kind of pretty much have to create a fandom somehow. You have to create a thing, connect people to it. And this is stuff that I kind of clocked 10, 12 years ago. And then the podcast gave me the opportunity to experiment with it. And now I've got a situation where I think I said on stage, you know, I've not got 20 million fans. I feel like I've got 600 fans, but I'm really wringing everything I can out of them. (laughs) So if you're one of them, thank you. Um, But I, I was kind of going, oh, God, yeah, I don't know if I'd have the energy now to approach comedy. I don't know if I would want to approach comedy as a career choice if I'd never done it before. And I apprehended it as oh what you need to do is it's comedy these days is the art of creating a fandom that you're connected with somehow i'm not saying that's necessarily true but it's it's a a perspective on a career a comedy career is the art of of creating a fandom somehow and um i said i don't know if i'd do that and finn said well you did do that you did it 10 years ago and i suddenly went oh yeah i suppose i did i suppose i did and for me as i've said a lot you know the 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 unusual thing about this show is that, in terms of comedy shows, is that it isn't me riffing and being hilarious, as you can tell, clang. Um, but um, but it's sort of, it tries to be useful. And I think if you do something for long enough, you find out, like, the you know, the owner starts to look like the dog. <laughs> I think that's quite a good analogy, under the circumstances. I think if you do something, then, then you find out who you are, because you're the person that did that. Mamet, character is plot, all of that business, right? So so this podcast has enabled me to find out who I am and uh, I don't mind him. <laughs> I don't mind him. And uh, thank you for helping me discover that. And, and in terms of the future of what happens next with it, I will have a bit of a break, I think. It, it's almost a shame that I messed up the numbers and didn't go Dulce, Rigby, 
bang 400 Rob thanks I'm going back into the studio as the Counting Crows said on the end of their Live Across a Wire album often think of that we're going to go back into the studio um, but there's two more and then I'll have a think and in the meantime I mean to be honest I've got a, a brilliant comment coming on this weekend so I'll probably wing that out as well so two or three but then I will try and be disciplined and say a break now um, and I may not live up to that I might just keep knocking them out but um, uh, as for what happens over the next 10 years, can it keep going for another 10 years? I always said to people, I'll get to you, I'll get to you, I'm going to do it forever. Will I do it forever? I mean, I might. I mean, I'll die eventually. <laughs> and listen, there comes a time in every podcaster's life, for me it was about three or four years in, when I thought, oh, maybe I should record a, an in-the-event-of-my-death recording because... That would be nice, wouldn't it, to be able to have someone whack it on the feed? I should I should make one and lodge it with Nathan. And I say that now, and I may already have done it and forgotten about it, which I think tells you everything you need to know about me. Um, but assuming to bring it away from death for a moment, perfectly reasonably at this time of celebration, um, I think, let's say the next 10 years, what discoveries are there still to find? That's the question, isn't it? Because there is no point just slogging and knocking out episodes no matter how interesting and insightful and fun they are I mean is there maybe that is an end in itself but to my mind there's sort of no point unless you're discovering something and I think in the in the salad days of this podcast being new and successful and people getting excited about and interviewing me about it um more than they do now um I think then the answer I would always give to people is, well, the reason I think it's successful is that it's just me following my line of inquiry. Like, I want to know how Olga Koch writes her jokes. I want to know uh, how Kathy Griffin really feels about the decisions she's made, you know. I want to know how Jonathan Coulton writes a song, you know, and puts himself and, you know, finds the mundane and the monstrous, those kind of things. So provided I still care about that quest... This will keep happening, and I do still care about it. But coming back to the owner looking like the dog, um, how much, how much more like the dog can I look? What about if the dog started to look a bit different, and I started to look even more like the dog? I, you know, the way that, for example, wonderful Richard Herring, friend of the pod, and a uh, person who will also be celebrating a tenth birthday roundabout now. Um, he, you know, if you look at what's happened with Richard Herring over the the ten years of Rahelisper, and, and he was potting obviously lots before that as well, but the way the the way we think of what is a Richard Herring, and you know all those kind of things, that's what's such an exciting thing, isn't it? Because I say it all the time. You you start out in comedy and you go, I'm going to be like this. And you try and go towards this idea of a comic in your head. And then hopefully, if you've got your eyes and ears open, you instead become what you actually are. You discover what you actually are. So if we can look at someone like Herring and go, oh, wow, he went from being half of Leon Herring and, you know, into being this other kind of writer and creator and interviewer and all those sorts of things. I think that's a really fascinating journey. And I'm aware that I'm on my own one of those. So I am where I am now. I'm sat here in front of, and you can buy this in the shops, the second edition of Creativity and Innovation, edited by Professor Jonathan A. Plucker. And I've got a chapter in there about creative efficiency. Um, I've had a, I've been published in a thing. That's good. That wouldn't have happened before. What happens next? And am I being busy enough? Or am I just waiting to see what happens? Well, who knows? There's two methods of hunting, aren't there? There's go out and find a thing and then sit there and wait for the thing to come. And I like to think I do a little bit of both. And as the insight um, fades slowly into introspection, as it often does, 
that'll probably do us. That'll probably do us, eh? Um, thank you for everything. And there'll be a few more of these before there's a little break, and then there'll be a lot more of these. So that's that. Um, follow at ComComPod on social media, and I will try to put pictures on there. What I'll probably do is put the pictures, fan art that some of you have made, I'll put them on Twitter, and uh, and then everyone will go, why don't you put these on Instagram? And the answer will be because I've deleted Instagram, but I can uh, upload them from my laptop. But that's not what you're supposed to do, is it? But it'll have to do. Um, thank you for all the fish, and uh, I will speak to you annoyingly next week. Thanks, everyone. I mean, specifically you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.